Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning thanking You so much, so very much, for Your sacrifice on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that this morning, as we go through this text in Matthew chapter 4, that You would guide us to a greater appreciation for what You had to go through even before the cross to be a worthy sacrifice. We thank You, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We haven't already. Um, Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be doing the first 11 verses of this. And uh, we're going to talk about sin today. And um, it's not a very uplifting topic, but the end result is very uplifting. So again, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hand they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put your Lord God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All of these I will give to you, If you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I thought it was kind of interesting that today is Palm Sunday, where if you go forward a few chapters to Matthew chapter 21, we read about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on a colt where everyone was putting palm branches and their, and their cloaks in front of him as he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem like a, like a king, singing Hosanna in the highest. And I think we could all agree at that point in time, everybody was saying, Jesus is worthy of praise because He is the King. But if you were to go out and ask ten Christians out there why Jesus is worthy of praise, nine out of ten of them would probably tell you because of His death and resurrection. He is worthy of praise. And they they wouldn't be wrong. 
He is absolutely worthy of praise for those things. But you may get that tenth person that says, well, Jesus' life had something to do with that too. You can't be a perfect sacrifice without a perfect life. Jesus was sinless in his entire life, from birth to death. There was no one else like that, ever. Yay, I agree. (laughs) And for you note takers out there, there's going to be three points today. Point number one, Jesus the obedient. Point number two, Jesus the word. Point number three, Jesus the better Adam. We'll just jump right into point number one here. Jesus the obedient. Jesus the obedient. As Travis preached last week in Matthew chapter 3, when John questioned as to why he should be baptized, that is, Jesus should be baptized, Jesus answered him it was to fulfill all righteousness. And in Matthew 26, jumping forward a little bit, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Yet not my will, yet your will be done, speaking to his Father. Jesus' purpose on earth was to do the Father's will. And it was to pursue and succeed in all righteousness. As we see in verse 1, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus was perfectly in tune with his Father's will. There was nothing that he did without the Father's direction. And the specific purpose of going into the wilderness was to test Jesus. Jesus wasn't just wandering and just happened to find himself in the desert. He was led there for this specific reason. The Father's will was very purposeful. And it was an appointed meeting with the devil. Then in verse 2, we find out what Jesus did before he was tempted. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He was fasting. We discover here that Jesus was not only obedient to the will of the Father, but he met the conditions that the Father set for the task. And we can see that same commitment to the means at the cross as well. Note that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus did not offer any suggestions as to other or better ways to accomplish the task. But was completely submissive when the Father gave him no other way. And of course, we can realize that this was no easy task. Because Jesus fasted 40 days before, this, before the devil even came to him. What is the purpose of fasting? Basically, it's to set aside the needs of the flesh and focus on God in order to be closer to him. Being tempted by the devil, even though this is compressed into 11 verses, definitely wouldn't be as easy as we just read through it as we just have. We think it was just a a little thing that that, that happened here. It certainly was not. But on top of that, try starving for 40 days first. 
That was Jesus' condition. And this served to put Jesus in a particular condition, which we'll talk about in points two and three. Let's move on to point number two. Jesus, the word. Jesus, the word. A couple verses came to mind when I was when I was reading through this passage. Of course, we all know John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Skip forward a couple verses and the word became flesh to live among us. This is God of God. Just put on an earth suit for 33 years. But this was the very Word of God. With God in the beginning, created all things by that very Word. But as we ponder Jesus in this particular situation, another player comes in after his time of fasting. But we have to wonder. What's the devil's disposition in all of this? Well, of course, we know from a very sovereign perspective, we go back into the Old Testament, reading Job chapter 1. This time was appointed. This time was purposed. If we read in Job chapter 1, Satan comes up to God and God says, Have you not considered... My servant Job. I can't help but think that God was baiting the devil a little bit here. But bring it down to a little bit closer to our perspective. See, in some fashions, the angelic beings are not all that different from, from what we are. Granted, yes, they are more powerful by far. But we cannot forget they are also created beings. And anything that is a created being is also limited to the scope of time. Anything that has a beginning is limited to the scope of time. He's not omnipresent, which means he can't be everywhere at once. And just like us, they make their decisions in time as well. So, in these particular situations, we have to think... That for all we know, just like throughout the course of the Old Testament, that even demons make decisions in time like we do. So we, don't, we, are given the, we are given the idea that Satan went up to heaven this time, or Satan was in the presence of God. And God's saying, have you considered my son Jesus? No, the Bible doesn't give us that information. So for all we know, in time... Satan said, well, Jesus is out there in the wilderness right now. Hmm. He's just been fasting for 40 days. Wow. What an opportunity. But how much did he know? Of course, he didn't know the mind of God. He certainly knew who Jesus was. But did he really think he had a chance at success? You know, the Bible talks about Satan as a roaring lion ready to devour anyone that he can. And I can't help but think Satan was waiting out there in the wilderness, just watching. Just watching Jesus for 40 days, watching him without food. A perfect target in his mind. But even though he knew who Jesus was, Jesus was still 
fully human. So maybe he was maybe in this weakened state there was a chance. Behold the power of pride, everyone. That is what brought Satan down in the beginning. Is what led to his defeat here. Now as we move on, some of Jesus' answers allows us to hearken back to the Old Testament once again. Jesus' 40 days is representative of the 40 years that Jesus or that, that Israel spent in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, which is one of Jesus' answers to the devil's temptations, is an echo of this time in the wilderness. Where the Israelites failed, Jesus succeeded. And we see and a repeat of the very word that we read in the Old Testament in these 11 verses in the book of Matthew. And in verses 3 through 10, Jesus uses the word again and again and again. When I was uh, learning to study the Bible inductively, we learn to look for repeated phrases. And typically, repeated phrases are important ones that we are to pay attention to. And the repeated phrase in this section is, it is written. Lord Jesus uses this phrase three times each time when the devil tempts him. And this is how Jesus answers the temptations. According to the Ligonier commentary, the temptations appeal to common motivations. The physical drive, pride, and materialism. In these three things, you can pretty much sum up any sin that we are ever encountered with. Think about it for a second. You can't name a sin that doesn't fall under one of these categories. I couldn't think of one. Excuse me. Now let's visit these one at a time. Whoa, excuse me. One at a time. The physical drive. We read about that in verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. We are tempted into sin at times when our physical bodies are deprived or we have felt needs of some kind. How many times have we fallen into sin because we felt something, we felt our body needed something? I thought of a couple of examples in Scripture where this is definitely apparent. In the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau was hungry after a long hunting trip. What did he do? He gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup. What about David and Bathsheba? David had the felt need, and he acted upon it. The temptation was there in front of him.
And once again, going back to Israel's time in the desert, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What does the Bible say about our needs? That God will meet them. What do you have to worry about? Don't worry about what you might eat or what you might wear. The Lord will provide because it is the Word of the Lord that even provides the food that you're going to eat. It is by His Word that we live. But not only live physically, but live life more abundantly also by His Word. The next one we visit is pride. Verses 5 through 7. Pride. If you are the Son of God, two of the three temptations have Satan trying to bait Jesus by questioning his divine position. And he takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple. And according to historians, overlooking the valley of Kindred. I'm not too fond of open heights myself. And uh, I can imagine that this would probably make me ill going up this high. But in other words, Satan takes him to a spot where certain death awaits anyone that would decide to take a jump. But Satan tempts Jesus to jump anyway and then questions his divine rights. Satan uses Scripture itself to try to trap Jesus. And I thought about this for a little bit, and I thought of how many ways the world tries to use Scripture against us today. One of my personal favorites that came to mind was um, the parent's ability to stone a disobedient child. They like to use that Well, you're a Christian. You believe in the Bible, right? Can't you stone your kid for for being disobedient? I heard a yes out there. We need to talk later. But no, they use Old Testament texts to try to paint us in a corner, just like Jesus tried to do here. And in this case came from Psalm chapter 91, verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, of course, if we were to look at the whole text of of Psalm 91, we would quickly see that Satan has used this passage in the exact opposite way it was intended. Satan uses it as a means of presumption, where this is owed. But in fact, if you read it, it becomes very apparent very quickly that this is about faith. But interestingly enough, Jesus responds from a simple text in, again, back in Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. There was no long, drawn-out explanation of context. Oh, you got it all wrong. You just got got to read the whole thing and, you know, just... It wasn't, it was simple. 
It was such a simple answer that Jesus used to counter Satan's temptation here. In this case, the explicit command of Scripture, do not test the Lord your God, trumps the implicit and out-of-context challenge that Satan gives. The next one, materialism. In verses 8 through 10. All of these things I will give you if you bow down and worship me. This is an easy one, folks. The lure of riches. Sad part is, it really doesn't have to be riches a lot of times, does it? Think of some real life examples where something is tempting that you want. Something that you, you either envy or you just see and you want. You see a means to get it. It's not exactly the best way to get it, but, you know, I mean, I could get it. Nobody would be the wiser. We probably think about this every time tax season rolls around, right? But those are real-life examples. This one's easy, folks. We all know that it's easy to, to fall to the lure of an advantage. In this case, all of these things. All the riches of the world. The parallel passage for this text is in Luke, also in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And I liked what verse 5 said in that one. And... Um, you got to kind of use some redeemed imagination or put on your Star Trek cap in order to really dive into this one. It says, The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms in the world in a moment of time. So, Satan moved really fast and showed Jesus everything the world had to offer. That's a lot of stuff, folks. I mean... We, usually when we think of lots and lots of riches, we think of something like Fort Knox or the national debt or something that's a lot of money. But just think, all of the riches of the world combined that we see. And these weren't like dollar bills. These were, these were statues 60 feet tall made of gold. These were, these were throngs and throngs of people coming at you, just giving you everything you've ever wanted or never even knew existed. This wasn't some simple little thing that Satan presented Jesus with. And we fail at tax time. But Jesus' response, also from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Verse 13, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name shall you swear. Again, Jesus uses scripture to counter. In other words, the worship of God is of greater riches. Interestingly enough, when we fail in this area, we are, in fact, giving the devil a victory. We are, in fact, 
giving Him worship when we say yes to that temptation. It is so easy. That's why the book of Hebrews calls them the sins that are so, that so easily ensnare. But rejoice. Where Israel failed, where we failed, Jesus succeeded. And in here we have Satan's failure. Verse 11 tells us very simply, then the devil left him. Sometimes I wish the Bible would go into a little bit more detail than it does for some of these passages because I can't imagine after that final temptation where, where the devil just laid out all of his cards, puts them all out on the table, just puts it in this one last shot by offering everything. And then it doesn't work, just darn. All right, see you later. I'll just be on my way. I can't imagine that. I can imagine the most cosmic temper tantrum ever. I can't imagine Jesus walking, or the devil walking away from this, not thinking anything about it. And if he could, laying swaths of destruction everywhere that he went in protest of this. But something else I found fascinating, if we read in any of the New Testament Gospels, there were no, tempt- no more temptations from Satan. He didn't appear to him again to tempt him. That is very telling because this was Satan's shot. This was his opportunity. And Satan didn't bring his pop gun. He brought all guns to bear. He pulled out everything here. He pulled out everything. I'm reminded of so many movies. Star Wars being a great example of this. But we see the small and seemingly insignificant Master Yoda who walks with a cane. And then when the time comes, he can disarm anyone that comes his way. This is exactly the same thing is here. Satan came with his biggest sword. Jesus came starving. And we find out that the sword of the Spirit easily disarmed the enemy. But the reason that we see, that we don't see Satan coming in anymore is because he was angry. He was angry at the Son of God. I have read in the past in some commentaries, and I tend to agree, that Satan knew at this point in time that he was defeated. He knew. 
that there was no chance for him to thwart Jesus' mission. So the rest of the time, as we look in the rest of the Gospels, we see Satan making it as horrible as possible for Jesus' day. And up to and including the cross. Whether he knew or not what the cross would do. But I can't imagine Satan choosing a better means to kill Jesus. The worst possible means of torture and death ever devised by man. Reserved for the Son of God. Point number three. Jesus, the better Adam. Jesus, the better Adam. I'm going to read you a couple of passages here to kind of make this point. And interestingly enough, we uh, had a, uh, in our Sunday school class this morning, we, uh, the, Dr. Grudem spoke on sin. So that was, that was rather interesting. So those of, those of uh, you that were in there or have already heard Possibly this one, maybe the other one too. But um, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 14. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, that is Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. He that is Jesus, helps the offspring of Adam. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's contrast for a moment. We already contrasted between Israel and Christ. Let's contrast between the first man and the better man. But first we need to paint a picture. Let's paint a picture really quick. Go back to the book of Genesis. All the way back to the beginning. We know the story. God made everything. God made the heavens and the earth. Made the earth beautiful. Made man and woman. Placed them in the middle of the most beautiful part of the world. And everything about it was good. They even ran around naked. They didn't have to worry about the weather. They didn't have to worry about being cold or hot or anything. It was paradise, folks. Absolute paradise. And he gave them one rule to follow. Just one. Do not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Now that we have the picture in our heads, how did Adam do? Well, we already read it. Romans chapter 5. But interestingly enough, if we read that account of Adam and Eve's failure, just like Christ, sin met the same criterion. The devil appealed to their physical need, to pride, and to materialism. But just so we can complete the comparison here, 
Let's go to Christ and his time on earth. He was born in humility. Sometimes I think a better term would be destitution. He was born in a feeding trough, surrounded by animals, by every right. He should have caught a disease and died. But that's the way it happened. And in his own words, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And as he said to to John the Baptist, he came to fulfill all righteousness, which meant Jesus' time on earth had to be spent in perfect obedience, not just sinless, but in the pursuit of righteousness according to the Old Testament law. And that includes the ceremonial law too. Now, I have to share this with you because... Over the last couple of months, uh, a bunch of us have started listening to the, or reading the Bible in a year. And oh, while I was preparing this sermon, I was given the joy of also listening to the book of Leviticus at the same time. And I hear chuckling out there, and you know, it's not the easiest book to read. But as I was preparing this sermon, I was given a particular amount of of joy as I was reading. And I'll get to that in just a second. But first, I want to read to you this small, obscure passage in the book of Leviticus that I found particularly interesting. Try to stay awake. Leviticus chapter 14, verses 32 through 39. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When you come into the land of Canaan, which I will give you for possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession... That he who owns the house shall come to tell the priest, there seems to me to be some case of disease in my house. Not of the people, but of the house, mind you. Then the priest shall command that they empty the house before the priest goes to examine the disease, lest all that is in the house be declared unclean. And afterward, the priest shall go in to see the house and shall examine the disease. And if the disease in the walls of the house with the greenish or reddish spots, and if it appears to be deeper than the surface, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house for seven days. And the priest shall come again on the seventh day and examine. And it goes on to say, if it's clean, then this. If it's unclean, then that. And it goes on. And we can probably recall from our readings of Scripture other passages about ritual cleansing. And those kinds of things, which all had to be observed. Now, what we can take away from this passage, first off, is if your house has a disease in the walls, I think I can speak for all the elders here, do not call us to come and inspect it. (laughs) Call us to pray for your home. Secondly, call the Centers for Disease Control and get a can of gas and a match. Those are my suggestions. If you find a leprous disease in your house. Now, in reading this and like passages throughout the book of Leviticus, I had a burning question in my mind. At this point, you should too. And that burning question is, how do these people live without smartphones? Can you imagine having to remember all of these things to do? Siri, remind me. To contact the priest next Saturday so he can come and inspect my home. 
And remind me tomorrow to call my brother because we can't go in there anymore. That's a lot of stuff to remember. That's a lot of things to remember. But it was all required for righteous life. These laws had to be observed to be declared righteous. What does it have to do with Jesus' temptation? Well, I think I just answered that question. Jesus' life had to be perfect, observing all the law. And on top of that, not succumbing to the temptations of the greatest tempter ever. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And as we read in the book of Leviticus, all of it. You still want to do stuff like that? You still want to have to call the priest to examine your home? Or you want to have to shave your head because you touched something you shouldn't have? Or be cast outside of your camp? problem is we can't do stuff like this. The people back then couldn't do stuff like this all the time. They failed regularly. Read about it sometime. The Israelites weren't exactly faithful. They weren't exactly faithful with their calling, were they? And as we look back to the very beginning, the head of the human race, Adam, failed in paradise with one rule to follow. When Jesus' temptation, he fasted for 40 days before Satan came along and tempted him with a little bit more than an apple. And to put an even sharper point on an already sharp point, Adam was the only human being that came from a condition of innocence. He had no predisposition to sin. If anything, he had a predisposition to good. If you recall, in Genesis 1, on the sixth day when God made man, it was very good. To those of you with a sense of self-righteousness that think they are good enough, what chance do you think you have? When the world around us is a lot more than an apple to tempt you, Man failed in paradise. You will fail now. There is a reason that Paul wrote Romans 3.23. And that is because Paul understood our beginning. And if you don't know, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. doesn't leave much wiggle room for anybody, does it? We have no chance, zero, in and of ourselves. To succeed in righteousness. And that leads us to our need for a Savior. As we read in Hebrews chapter 4, Christ was tempted in every way so we can go to Him and He relates with us. He knows our need better than we do. And that's because when we are tempted, 
with sin. Christ was tempted more. Again, if we read this passage, just condense it down to these 11 verses, it was a lot greater temptation than these words can express. You have to use a little bit of redeemed imagination when we, are, when we read these passages. Jesus was faced with the absolute maximum amount of temptation possible. Again, Satan didn't bring a pop gun. And we need to realize that for people to relate to us and help us with our sin, they do not need to have succumbed to the sin to walk alongside you. The understanding of sin comes from resistance to temptation, not from falling into it. That's how Jesus relates with us better than anyone, because he was tempted and did not fail. We would fail in paradise. Jesus succeeded in the worst of conditions. For those that believe, this is Holy Week. Again, this is Palm Sunday. We observe Friday, Good Friday, and Resurrection Sunday next week. What we can take away from this is a reliance on Jesus Christ. The very Word of God. So this week, be in the Word much more than you have been. Even if you haven't been for a while, even if it's some days and other days not so much, we all struggle with this from time to time. But make it a point this week to be in the Word. And even so, change it up a little bit. Just since we started uh, going through the Bible in a year, I started something new. I never heard the Bible read to me before in, some, in, in that respect. I've always just read it. Haven't had it read to me. I got an app on my phone that reads the Bible to me instead of me reading it. And it really helps passages jump out in a way that, never, that I've never heard before. And by being in the Word, we can meet temptation the way that Jesus did. We meet life by the Word of God, temptation or otherwise. God created this world by His Word. Be in the world by His Word. If you are here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I hope this morning that I've conveyed to you a need. I hope this morning that you come away from this thinking, wow, I can't do this. Even with no ceremonial law or or Old Testament laws to follow, I still can't do this. There is too much out there. And the question is, will you come away from this service wanting your sins forgiven? And there is hope. Even though sin is everywhere, temptation is everywhere, we have a Savior whose grace is greater than all of our sin. Come to Jesus. Repent and believe. Let's pray together.
Lord God, Lord Jesus, we come before You this morning with gratitude that You have succeeded where we have failed. And not only that, we can come to You knowing that You understand. Knowing that You will hear our cries for mercy. And that You can save. We thank You in Jesus' precious name. Amen.